Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another Bald Move Prestige movie podcast. Today, we're talking about 1989's drama, Dead Poet Society. This is a community commission, old school, um, guerrilla funded podcast. Uh, several Bald Move members brought themselves together and like Captain Planet summoned us. Michelle Beach and Burnett on the, the forums and Discord. Nina from D.C. Rob, better known as Robot K. Stephen S. Brooklyn MD. Josh H., the perpetrators of this podcast. Uh, it's directed by Peter Weir, a guy who's weirdly done a lot of very influential films uh, for me. The Truman Show, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, The Mosquito Coast. Is written by Tom Schulman, whose career is all over the, the, the place. Uh, he did this. What about Bob and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? <laughs> okay. Eclectic. Uh, it stars Robin Williams, the late great, dearly departed, uh, who appeared in films such as The World According to Garp, The World's Best Dad, and Death to Smoochie. That's right. I went all Weird Williams. Ethan Hawke. We love him in Gattaca, the Before Trilogy, Training Day. Uh, he did really good work a couple years back in Good Lord Bird as uh, John Brown. Also, Robert Sean Leonard, who I mostly know as one of the doctors from House, long-running mm-hmm. A career there. Josh Charles also had two long-running uh, TV careers in The Good Wife. Uh, he played the husband of that uh, Good Wife and <laughs> Sports Night. Uh, finally, Kurtwood Smith, everyone's favorite dad. Uh, uh-huh. He's also plays a real shitbird in RoboCop and Rambo oh, yeah. Three, and of course Red Foreman. He's a he's a terrible dad in this film too. Do you think uh, Do you think Eric Foreman killed himself? As a result of uh, a constant yeah. stream of dumbass and abuse, mm-hmm. wouldn't let him act. Uh, yeah, we've got the, the this this film means a lot to a lot of people, certainly to people that commission this podcast, and we've got some uh, some feedback on that. But I kind of want to talk about it just just between you and I, Jim. Uh, your experience with this film? Uh, did you watch it? And what did you think of it? Did I watch it? I forgot to watch it, actually. I sat <laughs> down on this it. podcast to remember. Damn, I knew I was forgetting something. You didn't carpet the film, eh? D- no, I did not. <laughs> I did not reach out and grab the film, eh? I was uh, so bad, it took Jim like five <laughs> seconds to decode it. All right. Off to a strong start. It, it, so I've never seen this movie before. Yes, I did, in fact, watch it for this podcast. Um, I... I I keep finding new ways to appreciate Robin Williams, and this is one of those. Uh, it's, it's yet another inspirational and solid Robin Williams. Eh, let's just say 90s. It was 89, but come on. Uh, performance. And and I, I guess I keep uncovering layers of Robin Williams that I didn't know were there. Uh, I always thought of him as a funny man until I saw like, oh boy, world's greatest dad, stuff like that. Um, and movies like this just continue to impress me. Yeah, it's really good early dramatic Robin Williams. And it, it's one of those things where you can see the various directors experimenting with the Robin Williams handle and like how much it should be towards oh, yeah. Robin fucking Williams and how much it should be towards like the character he's playing. Because um, for, for my money, I think I think the handle was like five or 10 percent too much towards Robin fucking Williams. There's a couple Maybe. scenes where There's it's like, like a scene. yeah, one or I think one or two where um, he could have thro- throttled it back a little bit. But, 
you know, when you look at his where he was in his career at this, this is I mean, it was a revelation. Like everyone mm-hmm. uh, was like, oh, my fucking God, Robin Williams. Look at this. Um, That's a dramatic role he's playing. He's he's crying in this film. Uh, He's he's really good. He's really good. I think all the you- kids are very good, too. And I, I call them kids, even though they're all legal adults, I think. Um, yeah. But I, I'm so I'm only familiar with Robert John Leonard through house and i really like him in house and that's who i think of him as um as dr wilson but he 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 did a lot of like fairly subtle work in this which you don't get to see a lot from from him in house usually he's like kind of the butt of house's joke or he's the foil, yeah. yeah he he's just like the the side character here he's sort of the main character um and it's he did really good work in this movie i'm I, to the to the point where i'm surprised he hasn't done more stuff he's actually like a pretty sporadic film actor i think i think he's more interested in stage He's won Tony yeah. Awards and stuff. So I noticed that. Yeah, he was he's he, he's done a lot of stuff. He like starred in like the uh, Broadway adaptation of Philadelphia, among other things. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, when did you first see this movie? Uh, yesterday. You've never seen this movie before. No. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. Because I was trying to think of like, um, you know, this movie's I, I think for such a well-regarded award-winning film feels kind of polarizing in the film community. I was looking at the different Reddit threads. People were talking about it. I saw Roger Ebert's fairly scathing two-star review, scornful review of this film. Yeah. Um, and I like and, and as I was watching it, I was thinking, boy, this film, I think, is really, really relevant to a very specific type of person. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, like, as the film keeps receding in the past, whether it will remain as relevant as it 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 it, it was back in the day, and as I think it is still now, because it is like this kind of like almost fucking Hogwarts style boarding academy school for gifted young men, you know, it's Charles Xavier thing is kind of hard to relate to and uh, but uh and a lot of the kind of situations the boys i mean there this 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 film is made in the early late 80s it takes place in the late 50s and the boys are authentically racist and rapey there's a couple of scenes that um are really uncomfortable watch and are held up as like a rite of passage coming of age enlighten the same same kind of like revenge of the nerds type of stuff um, but I feel like if you are, you're, you're a young, you're a young kid that, um, has a lot of expectations. Maybe you're in seventh, eighth grade and the teachers are starting to throw the words gifted around you. Uh, this is the kind of thing that you like drink up like dry soil, like, like, like water, water and dry soil. Mm-hmm. You know, this, the, the themes, like, I, I think the plot is kind of threadbare, but the themes of this movie are very powerful. And it's the things that you 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 probably need to hear and want to be told, you know, question yeah, authority high, high on both axes of the uh, Pritchard scale. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
I can say, you know, it's a truly great work when uh-huh, when they're uh-huh. when they're pinning that. But, you know, like avoid. Don't be a nonconformist. Be a free thinker. Um, question authority. Uh, live life. Uh, don't don't let it you know, pass you by all that kind of stuff. And it definitely was uh, impactful to me. I didn't see this in the theater. But I did see this. I remember we we rented it as a family because I remember my mom and dad were watching in the room. Oh, boy. Um, oh, boy. I'm waiting to yeah. hear the inevitable conclusion of this story. <laughs> um, well, see, my mom was an English teacher, so I think she was like, uh, but like that the, there was. But the, yeah, I, I yeah, we can talk about that later. Um, but I yeah, it made like this kind of like kind of heady feeling of like yeah i kind of i want to mm-hmm. do something i don't want I'm, I'm i'm living in this fucking cornfield in southern indiana and i want to read books and know things and woo women and make a mark out in the world yeah and, this is one of the things i don't like about ebert's review is he seems to want to analyze this from like a very literary perspective and i get it the subject is close to him he's a writer uh he's probably fashions himself a bit of a beatnik uh the thing that I don't think he grasps here is how inspirational this is to everyday people, I would think. Um, and how it like he wants this to be almost an English or a poetry lesson uh, written in film. And yes, I would not have been nearly as interested in this movie if it was that because all of the names, all of the poems that they're actually reading They get to the heart of something without going into like, well, here's a lineage of all these poets, how they, you know, fed into each other. And here's the scene at the time. And don't forget the beatnik poets out there. Like none of that stuff would have resonated with me. The stuff that is on screen does because it's much more grounded in this base theme, which is, yeah, doing something with your life, being a free thinker, not following rules just for the sake of rules. Yeah, I agree. It's it's one of those things where like I saw and acknowledged the validity of all the criticisms that Roger, you know, he's a smart guy. He doesn't usually just say stupid shit off the top of his head. But oh, sure. Uh, I, I think he had a point. It's just the, the vitriol was. Yeah, it's like, I'm, you know, it's clear that Roger loved the English language, uh, you mm-hmm. know, had a well-rounded classical education. And the idea that someone would take like the highlights of a very specific like kind of time and uh, uh, commonality of these poems of like, you know, but you got you got the whole human race and history that you could draw on. Mm-hmm. And we're essentially talking about like the great English poets of the like 18th and 19th and century. Right. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, Thoreau and, 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 on the, and a surface with, level reading of them, too. Right. Yeah, and, and all in a very specific direction. Um, mm-hmm. I, I will say that, like, I think this movie is so close to being truly great. And if yeah. they had jettisoned a couple of the storylines, I don't feel like really went well anywhere or went in ways that I don't really think are great nowadays. And I think they needed a section where um, Robin Williams helped the students grapple with the shadow stuff. You know, we've been talking about on Yellow Jackets, like when things like what mm-hmm. happens mm-hmm. when you carpet the day and the day kicks your ass. <laughs> yeah. You know, like okay. there is tons of literature about loss and inadequacy and the gulf of yearning and uh, patience rewarded and things like that, that he could have done. But n- instead, it's just all throttle in the one direction. Don't stop. Don't ever be irrepressible. Mm-hmm. Question everything, you know, grab the life by the scrot in the throat. And <laughs> it is a little bit 
Pollyanna as a result. It is a pretty pretty schmalt. It is pretty schmaltzy and um a, a little less three dimensional than it could have been. Totally. That said, this film was made in 1989. I look, it's leading into the 90s, which I feel was kind of an era of schmaltzy Pollyanna filmmaking. But like, and Robin Williams did a lot of it. He, he did a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> Patch uh, Adams, Bicentennial Man, get fucked. This is Jack. <laughs> yeah. So I'm gonna judge it by uh, the peers of its time, and I think it comes out looking pretty good. Not not uh, not great. There's a little dust on it, but like, yeah, it's overall pretty good. Yeah, and that's the thing is like you said, like how inspiring it is to the common man. I read another review. I thought it was interesting that it's kind of like that reviewer's whole perspective is this movie is fundamentally dishonest because it's saying a bunch of things about the world that are not really true. You know, like like you can you can seize the day all you want. And but like some people don't even get into the seize the day line. Mm-hmm. You know, they're never they're they're not going to go to the the most prestigious boarding school, preparatory school and and be 75 percent bound to the Ivy League. Like they're not even going to get going to sniff college. You might even graduate high school. And it's like, you know, um, well, I, I, I could see I could see like, you know, it's like what if um, I'm I'm uh, and I was really close on the border of that guys. I get I was born in like this kind of shithole. A midwestern town that didn't have a lot going for it um and i did all the wrong things i didn't go to college it didn't and it, it it's it's turned out pretty well for me in terms of season carpet day being being things but <laughs> uh-huh. like i could see a lot of kids like being full of this kind of hope and optimism and try to earnestly put into practice what the film does and it just doesn't work out for them and then what? oh sure and i it's just one of the things like, i just wish i wish we had better I wish we as a society were better at supporting, you know, the 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 kid, the dreams that we put into children's heads is, is, is I guess what I'm getting at here. Absolutely. We need to be better at that. Um, the thing I like about this message here is it's not necessarily about finding success as defined by someone else. It's finding it as defined by yourself. And right. that is something that almost anyone can do as long as they don't get unlucky. And so many people do get unlucky. I don't want to dispute that. But like, it's not about going to the most prestigious school. It's not about becoming, you know, a master of the universe. It's about finding yourself, pursuing the passions that you are interested in. And the rest works itself out because you're a better, happier person. Yeah, I think they could have. I I, I agree. I wish there was a way for the film to kind of, again, like I said, deal with that other side where it's like, Making a mark doesn't mean like becoming president of these United States or a CEO or Mm. like a leading philosopher. It's about the quality of life you live and the experiences you're having and how you feel about them. Mm -hmm. And seizing the day for, you know, uh, a, a, a kid that's growing up in the cornfield or the the, uh, the the inner city is going to look different than seizing the day if you're coming from Wharton's finishing academy, right? Totally. Um, but like you can like seize the day to the best your capability. Um, but like I said, I didn't feel like the film. The, the other thing is you got to appreciate about the 90s looking back is what a boundless op. Um, what, it just seemed like so much so much more of an optimistic time. It was, you know, for sure, like like cry, like we had this, this this whole crime thing that had peaked and was receding, uh, had a quick adventure in the Gulf 
uh, in the Gulf <laughs> states that washed the stink of Vietnam right off of us. Economy was booming. Uh, we, 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 we thought we'd solved uh, racism. Uh, like there, there's just like, I, I, again, it's a certain, per, a certain part of the country felt this way, but it was pretty, you know, like the end of it, the, the Soviet union was falling and the mm-hmm. West and capitalism and God and apple pie and all that stuff had fucking won as we knew they should. Um, so a lot of this stuff, like it seems schmaltzy cause we're just living in fundamentally more cynical era where sure. all the dreams and promise of that has kind of turned to, you know, post nine 11 ash in our mouth and it is truly a different time mm-hmm. <laughs> and reflecting on a truly different time uh, of, yeah. of itself. So yeah, back in the fifties for, for a very specific group of people. Yeah. I definitely want my kid to see this movie. Yeah. No, I think it's inspiring no matter when you really live is. or who you are. Yeah. Yeah. And he doesn't know, like uh, he, he hasn't figured out all the, the ways the world could kick him in the face when he tries to carpe diem. So mm-hmm. Uh, it's never I, maybe, I, I maybe, do maybe like, that tank needs to be filled up. I, I do like the the movie. You know, it, it 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 creates this atmosphere within this classroom where kind of anything goes, and like carpe diem to these boys means something that it shouldn't actually mean, right? There are consequences for actions. You've got to know when to actually carpe the diem, mm-hmm. uh, and when to kind of let things slide because or when to lay low um and i think that's that's a lesson he tries to teach them but it focuses much more on the the carpe part than the well maybe maybe chill out a little bit part um there's really only one scene that deals with the consequences of the carpe diem philosophy yeah and that's the 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 resolution of films a bit messy too and the what it's like trying to to say or, or do or you know what is the i suppose yeah, because I guess that's like an object lesson is like, yeah, you everyone did the right things, but yet the wrong people are going to be punished for it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, yeah, it's an interesting question whether he was actually punished in the end. Um, I, I guess I oh, want to talk ruined. about the movie. Absolutely. Like, 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 do you want to talk? That might be a good place. To, uh, no, we, we need to probably do a recap yeah. of the film, but like. I want to reflect on how utterly fucked I think Robin Williams is at the end of this film. <laughs> well, like Mr. Okay, Keating about it, yeah. is going to be writing copyright for technical manuals for the next 20 years until he dies of liver sclerosis from alcoholism because he is mm. never going to work in any kind of boarding school Ivy League capacity again. I he's going to be blackballed. I, I think eight years from now, he's going to be doing just fine over in Boston as a therapist. I think that's what he's going to be doing. <laughs> oh, OK. <laughs> OK. He's going to go back in time. Yeah. Uh, fight in the Vietnam War. Uh-huh. Uh, find uh-huh. that girl in the Brooklyn bar. Yeah. Yeah. OK. All right. That's yeah. that's a happy ending for this guy. Um, well, he had a girl in London. We just never. True. Right. That could be her. It, was, it turns out it was a cricket game. That, you know, <laughs> he was going to uh-huh. and he enlisted in the first Gulf War. Yeah, that's uh, there's there a couple, go. you know, uh, the memory gets hazy uh, when you mm-hmm. get to goodwill hunting. And uh, <laughs> uh, what else? I think this movie looks great. Like it's got that kind of like okay. 90s era serious film quality. You know what yeah. my son would call this makes a film look kind of like old, you know, like it's, it's like this. There's certain there's a certain kind of. Yeah, there's certain that's like a, a weird sepia toning type of yep. 
like the focus is not too sharp and not too soft. It's just right. There's, you know, mm-hmm. the lighting's perfect. Um, sure. It all comes down to the equipment they're using uh, in the nineties. Yeah. And the performances are really good, especially since it's a, it's a mostly a fairly young cast playing off of uh, wild man, Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want, is there anything else we want to talk about? Should we get to the uh, recap for, I'm sure there's a lot of people who haven't seen this film. Yeah, I was one of them till two days ago. All right. Uh, this film is about a group of boys who are upperclassmen at a elite boarding slash preparatory school where this is where kids are shipped off. Like I said, it's, it's Harry Potter, Hogwarts. It's Hogwarts. It's American Hogwarts with 100% less magic. And uh, it's very stuffy. They, they, uh, do, they emphasize things like tradition and honor and discipline and excellence. And uh, it's very all buttoned down. Everyone's wearing uniforms. And uh, uh, Robin Williams is replacing the dearly departed Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. I'm sorry, the English professor that's been holding down the English department. He is a former student at this academy, which fascinates the boys. And they look up his biography in the, or I guess in his yearbook, and they find he was a member of a dead poet society. Uh, Mr. Keating, is that his name, Keating? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Has a very unorthodox style of teaching where he has the boys rip out the first several pages of their poetry manual. Uh, It kind of leads them on a highlights through, again, a a particular portion of of, uh, English and American poetry. Uh, Has them outside kicking balls while they're reciting poetry. Um, and and fills these kids' heads with the idea that they can do anything, and disaster predictably starts uh, when he when he gas up all these these privileged boys <laughs> with too, with too much go juice. They 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 run wild with it. Um, or or are they just doing what they should be doing, and a whole bunch of old men get in their way? Ah, I have my opinion, very good Jim. Question. Well, uh, but yeah, there's uh, there's some there's some shocking twists and turns. Uh, where do you want to start? Uh, I might not have watched this movie if someone told me there was bagpipes in it. <laughs> it's a lot of a surprising amount of bagpipes for an American film. Yeah. Just put that out there. Not a fan. I was just thinking how loud that must have been in that stone auditorium. <laughs> oh my God. They're in a wine you're, cellar. You're, here, you're, yeah. you're one of the kids that are like on the inside of the aisle and that, 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 that screaming banshee is going off three foot from your ear. Mm-hmm. Permanent hearing, permanent hearing loss. <laughs> yeah. One of their core values is deafening apparently. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, I'll go something serious since you're opening with the joke. Oh no, that's right, you, right, no, you're you're right. deadly serious about the dead pipes or the the dead oh, pipes, I am. the bagpipes. I hate bagpipes. Did you? I had no idea how fraught this production was. At least the, oh, the, the, yeah, the yeah. getting it going. Uh, Robin Williams no called no showed to production uh, because he. Hated the he hated the director, and I, I did a lot of digging. I could not figure. I, I've never found like a public statement explaining why. Although I thought it was also interesting that the that director did not want to work with Robin Williams either, and the studio responded by the same day burning down the sets and canceling the production. Is that a symbolic burning? Is that like Robin? We are willing to tear this thing down if you will just come perform. Apparently, there's a there's an interview with uh, one of the production assistants, and they're like, "No, we have actually dailies. Our dailies that day is of the sets burning down. We just we just filmed it for posterity. That's got to be a bonus on the DVD, right? 
Oh, I don't. Well, that kind of my, shit should be on DVDs. Uh, my question was, how did Robin Williams survive this? That seems like it cost a ton of money. Well, it was at the studio's behest. That's why. Like the, the studio was the one doing it. If he was like showing up as a diva saying, burn these sets down. I I can't stand but to he, look at but them. He call, no calls, no shows one day. And the and the, the, the company, like, it just felt. I don't know. It just felt like, man, somebody is going to lose their career over this. And it looked like everybody kept on working. He carpe uh, the deal, man. He nailed it. Um, Literally one day is all it took. He grabbed it. The other thing I thought was shocking is that Ethan Hawke uh, did not enjoy the experience of making a film with Robin Williams. Like, you know, here's this young man. He saw himself as a serious actor and mm-hmm. he thought Robin Williams singled him out. To kind of like make fun and poke at him. Wasn't that his character? So so that just extended off screen too a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what Ethan okay. Hawke said. Okay. And then I think this might have came out post William's suicide as Ethan Hawke reflecting on these public statements he's made. And he said in the, in the ensuing, in the meantime of those statements and, and, and now where he was at now. Um, there's one thing that Will, Robin Williams said, uh, like he, he kept on saying, like, you're so intimidating, you're so intimidating. And Ethan always had the impression that Robin Williams was saying that to like make fun of him because he was mm. so serious and like actor minded. But like uh, apparently a, a, a mutual friend of their both said that, like, no, Robin Williams meant that like you were scary good as a young talent. And he is kind of like a funny man actor trying to do the dramatic role. And he really did like sweat and so he like a lot of stuff that ethan was taking at slights was just robin williams probably you know, being insecure honestly maybe like, being insecure and then, like and the other thing is like i i can't believe robin williams is being mean about it um it, it's yeah, possible ethan williams or uh, ethan hawk who i looked up went to a lot of boarding schools and preparatory schools himself maybe a little fragile you know maybe, like getting I, a set and there's someone yeah, that bombastic kind of like you know needling you a little bit um I don't know, but uh, the other thing is Robin Williams was almost not cast because he wasn't the first director's first choice. Yeah, Neeson uh, who, was Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson, what pretty do you good think choice of, too. I think would have been great. It, this might be heresy if uh, I because because I do think that Robin Williams is throttled up about ten fifteen percent too much in this movie. Mm-hmm. I almost wonder, I, I would love to see an alternate history take where Liam Neeson was Keating because I think the movie is actually a little bit better. It's possible. Because I think I can he can hit all the... see him in the role. I think he can hit all the gears that Williams hits, um, but, you know, he's just also wouldn't do John Wayne uh, trying to recite mm-hmm. Shakespeare and Brando and doing doing all these kind of Aladdin type voices. I assume that stuff wasn't in the script, but I'm not certain. Not only that, but it's, it seems also something that we're encouraged. Like there is a story I read mm-hmm. that he hit, hit like a, a day and a half's worth of dailies from Disney because he was so afraid that they would see him doing some of this like stand up stuff and try to squash it. Mm-hmm. Try to be like, this is this is a this is a fucking Oscar bait drama. You can't have this bullshit in here uh so that was an intentional choice interesting i mean I, I, i'm not I even didn't sure mind a, it in context i i don't I, yeah i was gonna say i don't think it's a bad choice in mm-hmm. in the context of his career because like that's what people knew and probably people are like there was a lot of like you know probably elbowing in the audience like oh man robin williams he's doing robin williams stuff and it's just so brief but it, it is does feel like it's from a different film 
I I don't know. I mean, he's in tr- he's a trying film where to a boy break- doesn't kill himself at the end of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he's trying to break these kids out of their shells, right? I, so yeah. here's the thing that I'm not really feeling about this movie is I don't think they come that far from where they start by the end of this film. I think they made these kids seem too strong-willed in the beginning to have them complete their transformation by the end. Like all these kids are defying the rules of the Institute. Anyway, they're smoking in the rooms. They're talking shit constantly. Like they seem like they just dropped off the set of a Brad pack film halfway, you know? And then by the end, okay, they're full Brad pack now, but they always kind of had that in them. And I, I mean, maybe that's the point. Like it was always in them and, and these particular kids were able to be inspired by this guy. But to me, it would have been more effective had they, been very buttoned down had they been very by the rules and been kind of miserable because of that but i never felt that at the beginning of the movie well and i think it's like there's also a contrast between the way they were acting out and stepping out in kind of like um society approved ways like in in the kind of boys will be boys you know uh you get caught smoking in the dorm you know you're probably gonna get expelled you're probably gonna get into some shit but uh, if you sneak out, if you're kissing girls, if you do, but like if you're questioning authority and mm. you're questioning tradition and your parents, that is dangerous and that needs to be stopped. So it's like he almost like consciously took their, you know, because he says all these things about these young boys they are full of piss and vinegar and they think they're immortal and invincible and and, mm. and they're channeling it in bullshit directions. You know, they're they're building radios and smoking and playing dice and he's trying to turn them into like. <laughs> something that well, in like authentic human beings you know like sure. like 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 the, the the things you're trying to do here to study to be lawyers doctors scientists those are all uh important things that are dignified and they let us live but the reason we're alive and the reason we're living is because we have these beating hearts and we have these emotions and we have poetry and art and Mm -hmm. The thing that really struck me is how complete the it it, like like ever ever since this movie came out, there's been a steady attempt to defund the humanities out of essential of all public Mm -hmm. schools. Yeah. Uh, So everyone worships at the altar of STEM. Because like, oh, my God, we're falling by. Look at the kids in India and their math and look at the the, the, the engineering scores they are getting in Japan. We're falling. So like we cut out art, we cut out music, we cut out uh, the most civics and government classes. And it's all about math. And and that is transformations complete. My son's elementary had like, I think, one art class that they took every three weeks or something. And it's, Hmm. it wasn't even a dedicated art teacher. She was like in a little art bus and she drove from school to school. Like they have, they have really stomped that out. I think it's interesting that like, if you go to, I'm sure like um, private schools, they have all that stuff. They probably do have art appreciation Mm -hmm. and a lot more Mm -hmm. because that stuff is very important um, to teach, to make people into conscious thinking human beings. But, but it's not public school students, right? You just want them to work. Exactly. You want them to be productive. That's all it's hard not to draw it. that conclusion, right? Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's a system designed for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's like is it's really sad when I thought about like even in like I in like this kind of rural shitty school had a much more well-rounded education. My son got in a pretty nice suburban school uh, because he had the misfortune of growing up 30 years after they gutted all this shit. Um, I will also say that 
the stim stuff is easier to teach um yes because you look at this movie and what robin williams is doing here is what you would want every teacher to do which is to inspire their students through their teachings and that might not mean sitting down and reading through a poem and discussing you know uh the particular structure of it or whatever right what it means is giving these kids a connection to the material and a connection to life and understanding like hey why why is this stuff important what about it is exciting to me and can i follow that and pursue it and that's what he's doing in this movie and it's ideal it's what you want out of a teacher but we're not allowed to do that because the the systems we've set up all are based on grades and scores and uh, do you know the material? Have you memorized this? Whatever. It, because it's much easier to teach that way. It's it's much easier to to quantify and say, was this successful or not? It's all black and white, too. There's like yep. a right answer and a wrong answer. Exactly. Yeah. How do you how do you grade whether or not a student was inspired? Yeah. Or the quality of their thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like whether they're right or wrong, but like the quality of their the rigor of their thought processes. The... And it's harder to do. I mean, that's why every kid hates the essay questions, right? Because those are more designed to measure the quality of your thinking. Yeah, it, it they're just harder. It's harder to actually think about things deeply than it is to memorize a bunch of numbers and. Well, and you, the way the way kids facts. get to essays nowadays, it's like it just sprung on them. It's not that's not like uh, essays should be like the natural outcourse of like trying to articulate and defend your ideas. Mm-hmm. It's like you've been doing this for years. Now we're just going to write it down in a structured way. Uh, we're going to have but like, you know, it's it's just kind of like, oh, you've never written anything longer than two sentences before. Now, 800 words are due in my desk by <laughs> blah, blah. And I, I know. And that's. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of teachers getting frustrated with what I'm what uh, I'm 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 saying here. Um, and and God God love you. You guys try your best. I'm just saying that yeah, like, in a it feels like we the people have really undercut uh, your ability to do a lot of stuff. And if anything's getting worse, uh, a lot of places oh, yeah. in the country. Oh I mean, my it's God! Not just pay. It's not just you know making them buy their own freaking supplies and stuff. It's also yeah the way that we score education the way we evaluate education yeah and just the topics now are increasingly saying that can and cannot be teach the taught sure um and not just at like the little kid level but at the the high school level um it's uh it's uh it's, it's a sad state um i think they did a really good job introducing the pressures these kids were all under. Like I thought, um, especially with the Neil character, the Robert Sean Leonard's character, mm-hmm. um, they did a, he had he had the strongest through line of any of the kids in the film. In fact, I think he's the only kid yeah. that does have a through line. Yeah. Um, the the, the others the like, oh, I'm going to pester a girl until she likes me. Uh, mm-hmm. The other guys like, I'm going to. You know, I, I don't know what the what knocks over streets uh, or is it Charlie Dalton? I don't know what Dalton's art <laughs> Dude, was. I couldn't tell you which is which. They look identical to me because I, and I knew the way this film ended broadly, but I was surprised. Like, for example, I had the idea. Well, OK, I want to get to that later. 
But I, I thought that Dalton was going to be the one that betrays him at the end because I thought they were kind of giving him a coded villain arc where he was the one guy in mm-hmm. his carpe diem. He didn't really care about what other people thought. He didn't try to build consensus. Um, some guys wanted there and just do it. But he's bringing girls and drugs to the party. And I thought it, it, he, he was going to kind of turn on them because he never really f- felt that philosophy um, he because there's this one thing the kid the 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 principal said when the jig was up and and uh, Neil killed himself. Um, he said something about filling these kids' heads with um, uh, oh God, what was the exact words? It was something along the lines of a selfish pursuit of their own gratification, hmm. and I felt like that was kind of like. Dalton's arc that he was taking all this individuality for like maximizing yourself, even at the expense of others. And it was going to be natural for him to say the words that they, they put in the other kid's mouth is like, well, like this is all fun, but like, what are we going to do? Go down because of this guy, you know, mm-hmm. I thought they were going yeah. to get, it was kind of shocking when he's the one that punched the other. So like that surprised me, but none of the other kids really had like, any I, I, even Ethan Hawke's like I thought they were going to yeah. go with him having a stutter or something because I, I, I remembered him being reluctant to join, but I didn't remember why. But mm-hmm. then like there's this one scene where Robin Williams bullies him into writing brilliant poetry mm-hmm. off his dome. And then that was it. That was his arc. He was uh, then the, the the next significant role he had to play was throwing up and crying about Robin Williams getting sacked. Yeah. And he he starts the final standing on the desk routine, right? Does he? I think because he feels the most guilty about all this, right? He's the one that, yeah, yeah. He shouts at the thing like they made us sign it, all that, and it's. I think he stands up on the desk first. Oh, yeah, because I. So that's kind of hmm. like the resolution of his arc, I guess, is that yeah. he maybe will be the new inspiration for these kids. Maybe he's the Keating of the future. Um. Or he might be the Neil because like Neil was the one that kind of like championed the dead poet society and was pushing the kids to do this stuff. And uh, mm-hmm. also the one that kind of drug Todd, you know, uh, Ethan Hawke along with him. So like there's a passing of a torch there because because yeah. I think Todd's feeling at the end, it's like um, really feels Neil's death because he wouldn't have been half the person he was had Neil not or not Neil. Yeah, Neil yeah, not he really him took him wing. under his wing. Totally. Right. And like. Above and beyond, like mm-hmm. Ethan Hawke, it gives them like just puts up all these barriers, like rejects their advances like four or five. And like Neil just keeps on, keeps on, keeps on. Um, and not in ways that felt like. Like too much or malicious or anything like yeah. that. He, he he pushed him beyond his comfort zone, but not so far that it was a unbelievable or B felt mean spirited in any way. Yeah, I felt like it's a masterclass. If you were a young Chad Alpha in high school and you wanted to like sh- uh, sh- uh, uh, shine some sunlight on a poor beta, a kid in a shell, <laughs> an introvert or something, uh-huh. this is the this is the way you do it, right? You yeah, make him yeah. feel welcome and included, but not put pressure on them. Not try to like te- you know, because I think a lot of people try to like tease and cajole, which is the wrong way to like try to you know open a person out of their shell, right? Um, and he got the group consensus, too. He wasn't just, like, forcing him into these situations where everyone else presented him. 
Yeah, he was, and he, he was, made space inside the group for him to yes. kind of be off and and slowly gravitate towards rather than, you know, letting like Dalton jump in and start punch him in the gut and giving him pink right, bellies right. and you know, hazing and all that kind of crap. No, it was really good. Uh, I like the way they treat that relationship. Here, here's a question I have about Neil, though. Uh, actually, it's about his dad. Why is his dad such a prick? Like he makes him quit the the what I guess is this school yearbook essentially. Um, I, not I think the because idea... his grades are suffering, not because he can't handle the extracurriculars, simply because his dad deems him to have picked up too many extracurriculars. It seems like his story was like unlike most of the boys here who are multi generational wealthy. Red Foreman has just <laughs> scraped up enough money that he is damned if his son doesn't get every opportunity. Maybe he feels like he would have been X, Y, or Z, but he is eked his way from lower class to middle class, and he wants to make sure he want he wants to get his family on the old money path, and he'll mm-hmm. be damned if this kid throws away these opportunities that he has broken his back for. Because he wants to act or even if like, you know, like uh, so he's insulating him. He He's making sure he doesn't have opportunities to stray from the path. He wants the only yeah, the only opportunities he wants his kid are the ones that he puts in front of him because he's decided this is what's best for him so that he can make the money and he can be powerful. And he it's it's very controlling and oh, yeah. claustrophobic um, and painful to watch. You know? Oh, yeah. No, it's a. That's such a crazy philosophy. I get. I guess I understand it from from certain people, right? Like his dad very much feels like one of those guys who did carpe every diem. He just did it in the direction of financial success, right? He, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah he he sees opportunities, but also is he happier for it? Because he doesn't seem like it. He seems like a real mm-hmm. shit bird, like a stick in the mud. Uh, and so, you know, he, he views all these things he did as sacrifices and he says as much and he views his kid as his legacy. And I guess, I guess that's, um, it's one of the things that was interesting about the opening of parts of this movie where he takes this Robin Williams, like first class and he takes all the kids in the hallway and shows them the alumni from the previous photos who are all dead now. And, you know, he does this ghost whisper carpe diem thing. Um, and and I, I very much felt in those scenes with, uh, yeah, I don't know his name, Red Foreman, <laughs> um, that he was one of those one of those guys who who like looked at his legacy, but came away with the wrong conclusions. His legacy was like forcing this path on his future generations Whereas his legacy should have been let them figure out what they want to be and support them doing it. Yeah, but he's clearly like, you know, when this kid's 35 and he's got a beautiful trophy wife and the 2.5 children and he's living in a mansion uh, in Cape Cod, he's going to be like, Dad, thanks for kicking my ass and keeping me right, through right. Stone, And I'm a re- I'm a resident attending, at, you know, like surgeon at blah, blah, blah. It, it's. Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't know. A lot of parents do get gripped up like that with their kids. You know, they get so worried about uh, whether the kids are going to succeed that they control every little thing, and then expect them to like. Yeah, you know, I, I think directing your own life is a skill that you have to learn. 
like just basic things like the important, you know, like uh, fucking setting your alarm and getting up and deciding sure. what you want to do. And, and at some point you have to, in their teenage years, start lo- loosening up the grip. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by the time the 18, they're, it, the, you kind of let go and they're, they're, they're piloting and they, you know, still need support and help and all that kind of stuff. But like, you know, I think this is like, you know, Red's like one of those helicopter, you know, prototype helicopter parents, both, but with a lot more, I think, mani- there's all, okay, here's the other thing I want to talk about, Neil. This is because this is one thing I remember my mom and dad had a debate about the film where my mom is like, well, Neil was gay. And my dad's like, what the fuck, Sherry, you're crazy. This is your, you know, and he like, to be an actor. I think it's fair to say that Neil's pretty coded gay. Uh, cause it's not just that, so? like I was, cause I was, hmm. I, I had that thesis cause I was convinced that he killed himself because his dad found out that he was gay. I thought that, cause I remember the scene of his, his dad showing up at the play and I thought the way it resolved was that Red Foreman actually saw his son and was pleased and came back to the back room to congratulate him. And he saw him kissing one of those co-stars, which is a boy. And he had this big old blowout and said, I'm going to send you to military academy to straighten you out and all that. And that's why the kid killed himself. And I think it's because like, I've only seen this movie one other time before it was with, and I think it's because my mom made such a persuasive case. But if you look at it, it's not just that like, okay, he's playing puck in a highbrow midsummer's night dream, high school play. Mm -hmm. He's also visibly uncomfortable when uh, Dalton brings the women like he's the one that's most kind of like, oh, come oh, on, Charlie. Hmm. We got girls in our clubhouse and the, I, 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 it's very thin. But you got to remember, this takes place in the 50s. Yeah, it yeah. was filmed in 1989. Um, hmm. There's some of this stuff that is like a lot. It's very subtextual. But I do think that subtext is there. And it makes a yeah, lot. I it, see it again to it. It makes out. his dad's overreaction because like I. It'd be one thing if the kid was getting like B's and C's and he right, finds right. out that he's been fucking around. But like they made it clear that he's getting straight A's. His grades have never been better. And he's the star uh-huh. of this, you know, high school music play. And he's good at it. Um, it seems particularly maniacal for his dad to be that way. But if you're like, oh, there's also you got to understand that this is more about him. Even if the fear of his son being swishy mm-hmm. might have this late 50s father being this way. Um yeah, I was looking more but, yeah. at it from like he's trying to remove all the possible distractions from his child's life to keep him on the path mm. that he's on. I, I don't know. I'd have to go watch it again because I wasn't picking up on that. Um, yeah. But the thing about those kind of parents that kills me is they become the their own retort to their lifestyle, right? Like, yeah, y- y- all you have to do is ask your parents when they tell you, hey, you're on the path that we want you on and like. You're going to thank us for it later. Are you happy? Are you happy? Because you don't look fucking happy. You look miserable. You're so worried about what I'm going to do with my life that you are gripped up, can't live your own life. Well, see, that's the thing. Okay. Um, I think this is this kind of gets to the heart of class in America. And I think there's there's a reason why so many of these types of like self-empowerment films are set in these like preparatory schools and like because... I think a lot of middle class and lower parents like, yeah, fine. We want to be happy. Sure. But you know what? You really don't want to be fucking homeless. Poor. Yeah. And if you fuck around in this country, that's how you're going to find out. And there's mm. nothing I can do to say, you know, you're going to find you're going to be homeless or in jail if you don't. Uh, and I think a lot of parents are just gripped by that terror because a lot of times they think sense. back of 
I think I think a lot a lot run the reasons my mom and dad are the way they were is they think back about how close they were, mm-hmm. you know, because both my mom and dad came from my dad was a, a fucking farmer uh, from a first generation German immigrant parent. My mom, my dad's yeah, uh, my dad mom's dad never poor. graduated high school. His his he, he did the, the first house he had that had plumbing is when he moved out like at 17 to go work in a city like pretty. And, and like, I think that they were raised with the terror of like you could lose everything. You know, mm-hmm. our parents went through the Great Depression. You could lose everything. You could be out there starving in the streets. And and so instead of working toward creating support systems, they try and instill individually in each of their kids the need for success. Yes, we success. our family needs to become generationally wealthy so that right. we can have kids that fuck around and become poets and artists and uh, movie makers and things like that. You can't do that. Your right, grandkids right, right. might if you stop fucking around. I think that's the the, the <laughs> message. And but but yeah, For sure. I don't know. Maybe it's changing now. It does feel like we're on the cusp of like um, you know, 1930s and 40s style like you know welfare expansion programs, and maybe we can get a little bit more secure. But like where we're at, uh, yeah, Red's a little bit like really maniacal, but I can see where he gets it. He was, you know, he's. So this is in 1959, so he was a kid raised by kid parents that went through the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. He yeah. is terrified that his son's going to like. I, we just got to the middle class, son. You're gonna send. You're gonna send us back to the gutter. Yep. No, it's, it's a reasonable fear, but my God, the the ways that it manifests in the, probably the parenting and the politics of these people is not healthy. It's. Every time I see a depiction of corporal punishment in a school system, it gets, it gets creepier and creepier, man. It, it's almost like laughable to me. It's silly. Like you're taking God. a paddle to a, almost a full grown man. It's kind of ridiculous. And the way it sh- I couldn't help it, but notice the way it was staged and shot was almost identically like at a scene out of secretary. It seems so sexualized. When it's like Secretary. bend over, assume a position, <laughs> count out each time, Mister yeah, Dalton, yeah. you know, and he's like it's trying to break this. At least yeah. it, it is. It's very fucking. I'm so glad we don't let old men beat young boys <laughs> and girls' asses. Oh my god, that yeah. is such a perverse incentive. Uh, yeah, yikes. yeah. There, there was a pretty chilling line to me in this film where the the dean or the head of the school, whatever he is says you're in a long line of people who think they're going to get out of this by being expelled. I'm not expelling you. I'm just <laughs> right. going to torture you for the next four years. It's that's one of the pillars discipline, man. Yeah, that's Literally. fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, it uh, it is. It is definitely fucked up. And, and that's that's part of the reason. Um, I guess the stuff that Neil is saying later about like being trapped, right? He's 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 trapped because he's in this situation where he's not 18. He can't go do anything for himself yet. He has to follow the law of his parents and his parents have put him in a school which has its own strict laws and he's stuck there. So even if he wants to be this rebel, okay, well now his choices are I can be a rebel and I can get in trouble at this school and I cannot do what my parents want. And then I can face the consequences, which is probably daily paddlings and just being tortured by the administration here. Uh, maybe he gets through that. Maybe he doesn't. Um, the other place he can go is he can tell his dad how he feels and hope 
that his dad's going to be sympathetic and we see that that does not go well right like well we don't actually see that that doesn't go well i i feel like he never has that moment where he tells his dad how he feels he kind of he chickens does out. in when he's already in trouble but right but by then it's 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 never going to yeah. work. Um, even if, even I, if I will say that okay. I don't think it would, I think it would have been futile if he did the Robin Williams, but like it, they didn't try. So, so he really doesn't have options here. He, well, okay. So his one option here is to fake it until he makes it. Um, I guess he has two options. He can, he can just kind of live the life his dad wants, which will kill him as a person, mm-hmm. or he can just bide his time until he turns 18 and can go do whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah. And he's that, got like that. a year left. And I, if I wanted to like take this kid and and like put some advice into his head, I'd say just play it cool for a year, man. You'll be fine. Yeah. You'll get out and, of this and, and everything will be better in one year. Yeah, and literally run away, call up Dalton, call up uh, uh Start Todd, the Dead Poet Society outside of this po- school. Bu- yeah, bum off yeah. them for a while until you get to get yeah, you'll you'll be yeah. But it's like it's but it's boy, really tough I've been to tell there. kids yeah. that, especially since like, I think there's also the idea that his spirit was broken so much that he literally lacks the will to defy his father. Yeah. You know, it's not that he like, um, cause he's thinking, I mean, cause that's also pretty bleak. Cause like, um, I think the fear there is like, okay, yeah, hang in there and then do whatever you want, but also your parents will disown you. I can say from personal experience as a as a fucking man, that was a terrifying prospect for 17 years old. And all you want is your parents approval. Um, Yeah, that'd be that'd be tough. I also I also think if you go to Neil is gay uh, subtextually that a lot of the stuff makes sense, too, because there's no like I think Neil instinctively understands that there's no fucking decade that he could wait and become even the most successful surgeon in the world and be like, hey, dad, I'm gay. And And, and it's not just about his dad at that point. Right. Yeah. Then it's about all of society. Like, where does he fit in? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you know, that's one of the 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 commissioners pointed out. This takes place, um, co. uh, This is a contemporary of the the early seasons of Mad Men, Uh and like grown ass men in Manhattan that were gay had a pretty fucking brutal life ahead of them. Uh, even when they were well paid and like, yeah, it's just it's uh. It's a bad time. Like I said, I, I think that, that that unlocks a lot of the 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 weird things, the the kind of like um the the the, the weird situation it kneels in. Because it does it, it it did feel like a bit of an over I remember thinking that at the time until mom started up with her like, oh he's gay stuff. As I remember thinking like, wow, this is because I I was in that situation. I'm sitting here watching. I was like, mm-hmm. I think 16 or 17. I'm watching and I'm like, because I, I even told my mom on several occasions, like this shit flies until literally I'm 18 and I'm moving out of the house because I wasn't thinking I would stop being yeah. a Jehovah's Witness. But I was thinking I was not going to be a Jehovah's Witness like you are crazy. <laughs> I'm going to listen to Metallica. God damn it. I'm going to yeah. listen to Metallica. I'm going to watch a rated <laughs> R movie every once in a while if I think it has artistic merit. And uh-huh. you know what? I might engage in oral sex within the bounds of marriage. OK, yeah, that's kind of that's mm. that's. That's how I was going in. I was very much on the Neil plan. So when he killed himself, I was I, I, I took me aback. Oh, yeah, I bet. No, yeah. it, it OK, there, there's merit to that. I, I need to go. Yeah. Next time I watch this, I'm definitely going to be looking for that because I think it makes a little bit more sense. Although I don't I don't think it's an overreaction necessarily, even if Neil is not gay. 
even if he just thinks the next year is going to be hell for him. It's in military. I've gone from Robin Williams, oh, captain, my captain, to like a literal uh captain that's going to be, you know, making me scrub a a fucking toilet with my toothbrush. And yeah. And a year is a monumental amount of time to a 17 year old. Oh, that's another thing. Thinking ahead to the next school year, if you're like a nerd who's constantly bullied and made fun of and just feels like shit when they go to school a yeah. whole year of school is a lifetime at that age it really truly is i was like i, I had a funny conversation because my son's kind of planning out you know his pre-college career and all this stuff and he's like god two more years i can't believe how long and i'm i just it's hard not to laugh <laughs> i know i know because I, I remember just, feeling that way too i, I remember feeling 100%. like that's oh why my god i have a summer ahead of me this is the rest of my life it's gonna be right. amazing yeah and then, yeah. you know, a summer goes by in an instant now. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of the Neil plot line, it's kind of crazy that his mom didn't hear the gunshot. Like a gunshot uh, goes off in so, your house yeah. and your parents wake up. What was that noise? And your mother's like, what noise? Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. So I, I, I'm trying to give the movie credit more credit maybe than it deserves here he's two stories down in the basement of what is probably a pretty well-built home yes true it's it's not like me firing a gun in my basement where like you'd hear it four doors down because there is no insulation i I don't still a gunshot i know was he really three floors down in the basement in the basement he was in i think he was in the basement yeah or he was oh, at least see, I two thought he was in his down. dad's study, which I thought he was just like like you know in the room the the floor beneath his dad's I don't you know, bedroom. Think so, but I could be yeah. wrong about that. Uh, yeah. I, I thought I remembered him going down two flights of stairs to get to where Neil was. Um, but yeah, that's, a, that's an affecting that kinda, scene, though, man. It, that's the thing. It's like it works because you the slow build up because you know exactly in the urgency find. as he kind of discovers you know various things that are off about this situation, and and his urgency builds through that scene as he's looking for his kid. Yeah, uh, it's so funny because the other enduring memory I have is my, how much my mom empathized with the dad because I remember her crying and she's like, "Oh my god, that poor man! How will he ever forgive himself?" And <laughs> Remember everything I just said about what I my uh-huh. my relationship with my mother and just waiting to get away from her. Uh, I'm like, <laughs> you're yeah, not yeah. much self awareness there. No, not a lot. But you know, you get that sometimes. Um, sure. I almost don't even take the time to say just how utterly cringe the Cameron storyline is. Like his Cameron his, is who he's the the one with the relationship with Chris. He he, fi- he walks into this girl and it's the most beautiful girl he's ever seen and he fixates on her. Wait, even is that, she's got I thought play. that was Knox. That's Knox Overstreet, was it? right? Knox Overstreet? I think so. Oh, I'm so. sorry. Who, there, is there even a Cameron in this whole there thing? There is. I don't think. But I don't remember really. which. Well, anyway, yes. It's the, it's the guy you're talking about. The guy's riding his bike everywhere. And. Oh, Cameron's uh, the guy who ratted. The, the guy who ratted first. Okay. Okay. So you're saying this is uh, Charles on him or Knox Overstreet Knox Overstreet, which is a great what name. a fucking name. He picks uh, on all this these people for their names, but not uh-huh. Knox Overstreet. That's the most right. high society bullshit name I've ever heard. Thurston Howell the third, I think, is the only one that out <laughs> out old money is this kid. Yep. Uh, but everything about this guy. So like it's 
he he has no inkling that this girl is interested at him at all. He gets fixed in his mind that like she's dating a jock and she's smart for some reason because uh, she's upper class and she deserves a man like him. And super weird. Yep. And it's already egregious because I'm like, God, you're going to this guy's party at his house. and You're going to try to mack on his girl. That's some that's some that's some embarrassing shit, man. Mm-hmm. That is some that is some that is some gross violation of any any reasonable app, uh, reading of the bro code. Uh and she's not into it at all. Like, and 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 she gets drunk, passes out on the couch, and he mm-hmm. starts. And I'm like, he's like, he's like, carpe diem. And I'm like, no, this is not a carpe. <laughs> right. This is not a diem. You need to carpe, son. This is the carpe no. jail time. This is bad. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, he starts kissing her forehead, and then the guy's like, look at Mutt's brother over there macking on your girl. And of course, he gets his, his ass beat. But it's like mm-hmm. the way the the movie's perspective is, Chet is a bad guy for beating this guy up for sexually assaulting his girlfriend and that that Chet that, uh, seems knocks- cool what's wrong with chet i i cannot detect they didn't characterize chet enough for me to think that she doesn't belong with him the only thing they do that gives you an inclination that she's a little unfulfilled is when he invites her to the play he's like are you going mm-hmm. with chet and she's like chet at a play like have you but ever like, asked Chet to a play? And also, show me a seventeen-year-old boy that's into Shakespeare. Hell, show me many seventeen-year-old mm. girls who are into Shakespeare. It's like show me a forty-one-year-old yeah. podcaster who's into Shakespeare. <laughs> right, right. Jim, do you want to go to the opera? Actually, right yeah, now, kind of. Is oh, it an fuck. Italian one? I thought okay. you. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Going to play the <laughs> Italian card. All right. I see. I see. Yeah. Watch some Pavarotti uh, or something. I don't know. <laughs> But yeah, it's uh, God, it's cringe. It's uh, Knox Overstreet. You are you have the worst, worst plot line. Oh, yeah. And uh, this includes uh, Charlie Dalton running around misappropriating Native American culture left, right and center. Uh, that this this Congo poem that they're reciting. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of cringe. There's a lot of cringe in 1959 movie made in 1989. Um, oh, yeah. Without yeah. a doubt. Uh, I will also say the other if, I, uh, if uh, the other critical thing is I felt like the movie tried to twee things up a little bit too much, like in just in the same way that Robin Williams is like 10 or 15 percent too much. These boys uh, horseplay. It's like, OK, we'll have one of them steal their journal and then they'll run around and laugh and then another guy will come in and they steal his math work and now everybody's playing keep away and now let's get a drum and a flute into it and like make this big. It's like. Everything was just a little too much. Maybe this is authentic boarding life and it just gets really fucking weird. We get a bunch of rich white boys in the <laughs> same room and mm-hmm. flutes and drums start coming out. But like I, I felt it very like, wow, this is very forced horseplay. Yeah. And I'm trying to figure out how much time passes in this film. Um, like it feels I think like it started the year to Christmas because they were talking about the break. Okay. You know, and it's all snowing. So, like, this is like the first semester in this preparatory school. Wow. And it gets that crazy that fast, huh? Yeah. You got Poetrusic, which is poetry (laughs) and music mashup. That's pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I I don't know. I mean, they're, they're chasing some sort of beatnik vibe from this group. Mm. And, 
they, they get mostly there for me. I'm I'm not. I didn't have much problem with the stuff that went on there. I thought, yes, All it's right. silly, but it's silly in the way that like, I don't know, boys can be. Yeah, I guess it goes back to the relatability. You know, that's certainly sure. none of the way my friends interacted uh, and, and, you know, even adjusting for like class and income and education like this wasn't authentic to me. Um, it felt very fan. It felt very fantastical. It did really feel like a non-magical Harry Potter. Like this is a whole other world that, mm. uh, you know, in the way that like, I guess like uh, there's something, you know, you think about like Home Alone. We talked about that a lot, too, where clearly Kevin and his parents are super wealthy, but like that never read. Where it's like you could put him in the prep. If you put Kevin in a prep school, I'm like, whoa, this is weird. You know, yeah, this isn't yeah. just a nicer version of my house. This is like Klingon society. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I don't I don't I don't get it. Um, What else do you want to talk about? Because we also have a lot of commissioner feedback. Um, I think maybe we should get to that. OK, Um, let's start with Michelle goes, oh, where to start with this brilliant film? In my opinion, this is the best film to come from the late 80s, and it's one that really made everyone sit up and take notice of the then stand on their desks and applaud Robin Williams as a dramatic actor. Well known him as Mork, as Popeye. It's funny that little Popeye came out in his performance. When he did Popeye. that first like ghostly carpe, he like closed half his mouth and squinted and just talked, and it's like, oh my god, he's do he's this close to Popeyeing. Mm -hmm. Get the corn cob pipe ready. They had the pipes. They could have stuck one in his mouth. True. A little bit, let little more Ivy League, a little less corn cob than mm -hmm. I think Popeye would like. But, you know, any port <laughs> in a storm, I'm sure he'd say. Uh, we all had known him as Mork, as Popeye, as DJ Adrian uh, Croneau. Croneau? I don't have no idea how to. The Good Morning Vietnam guy. Yeah. Uh, the manic and Zanini stand-up comedian. But this is where we all said, oh, there's more to this guy than when we all thought. The pure heart that he brought to this character, the warmth, understanding, and humor when interacting with the students, his love of language and art and poetry and of living and experiencing the beauty and heartbreak of life on his own terms. As a mentor to his students, he challenges them to bring out the best in who they can be, to strive for new heights, to go for what they want fearlessly and without reservation, and to make the most of each day. Even if something doesn't work out, at least you tried. This became a life lesson for me as well. It's one of the things that helped me bring out, uh, help bring me out of my shyness uh and stand on my own two feet to really get out and experience life when the easier thing would have been to run back or to back down or run away i would try to think of those six words that have stuck with me and so many others this day carpe diem make your lives extraordinary um this brought on another thought oh this is interesting about the the robin williams character and how he loved language and life and uh, the the zest of living all that stuff I think that Peter Weir damn near saved this film because when he got onto the project, the screenplay was written from the perspective that Robin Williams was doing this because he had inoperable cancer. And he was kind of like this cloistered guy who has found kind of a new life philosophy himself. And he's trying to. And then at the end of the film, mm. he dies and all the boys weep and realize like, oh, yeah, I could. Yeah, it gives a little bit more meaning to that thing. It's like we're all worm food, boys. You know, like the one certainty we have as we're standing here in this room breathing is one day we're going to be cold in the ground. Um, but it trades it. It, it 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 loses that. But I think it gains a certain like. 
lived experience. Like this isn't a man who regrets all the decisions he's made because he's now dying. It's a man who's lived by these philosophies and found great fulfillment. Yeah. And that's that's the thing that I love about I the agree. end of this movie is I you painted a picture earlier about Robin Williams, you know, being An destitute. Yeah. Uh, yeah, about Keating being destitute. You failed not to being escape to middle class, Robin. You're back in the gutter. You had the one chance. You had the Ivy League professor. And now you're fucked. You're fucked. Absolutely. He's fucked financially. He's probably going to be working as a janitor uh, at, a, at an Ivy League school himself. Um, the, the thing is, that's defining success and, uh, I guess, fulfillment as financial. And that's not what Robin Williams in this movie is trying to do. He's trying to teach. He loves to teach. And he has succeeded 100% in that. And it's demonstrated by the kids standing up on the desk and saying, effectively, without saying it, you've taught us something here that we are going to carry through the rest of our lives. Yeah. And I do agree with that. Like, I think that um, I'm only joking. I do think that Keating is ruined financially. Yeah, but yeah. like he does seem strike me as a type of guy that no matter as long as he could scrape in enough to keep his belly full mm-hmm. uh, that because uh, that's the other thing is like I, I do think the the other flip side of this whole bullshit thing that we've got going on in, in a lot of the West is that we've bought into the idea that like success means a very particular thing and it means a certain number and it means a certain amount of possessions. I think the major vast majority of people who are not in actively experiencing crushing poverty can in most areas, at least in the United States, find contentment doing something like there's Mm -hmm. so many hobbies. uh, If you think outside the box that you can do, uh, we can meet people and have experiences for very little money Uh, held, you know, like there's, 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 there's always something you can do. There's always, and nothing else. You can always pick up a piece of paper and pencil um, and write things down or try to make music. And uh, just that mm-hmm. we got this into our uh, head that you have to be successful in a very specific way. And it really holds people back because right. so many, I've, you know, I've known people that like are successful in a lot of different ways, but because they never got to a particular financial level or the ability to take X number of vacations or drive X, you know um late model year car they're miserable or they go deep into debt and well, make that's the thing more right miserable. it's such a hard thing to get out of your head that even if you find success in ways yeah. that are not financial you might define yourself as a failure simply because you don't have the means that someone else does yeah that's wild that you could have like a wonderful family and a healthy social life and all these hobbies and feel otherwise self-fulfilled but feel like you're a failure because you don't have a certain number in your bank account that's crazy crazy i do wonder because like i think there are and now that i've because i because I, I agree i think if it, him dying of cancer would have been a bad thing um it would have completely changed i think the lesson that you're supposed to learn uh, from it, this it film. takes him from a a sad example of how not to live your life right to an example of how to live successfully yeah, a guy who's, you know, not just like, don't do what I did, you'll regret it to like, do what I right. did, and it'll be awesome, no matter what happens to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of things in the script that really don't make sense. Like, why did he quit teaching in London? Because he's got a hot girl over there that he apparently left. Oh, I love teaching. Why can't he teach makes, over there? 
Yeah. It makes a lot of sense if he's got three months left to live and he wants to go back to the place that he thinks ruined him or set him like, you know, beat the piss and vinegar out of him and 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 undo that Un- for a net turn the tables boys. on all them. Yeah. But like, yeah. Why did he go back to this high like where he, he has to work out of a fucking closet? And he's getting shit on by the deans for his unconventional teaching approaches and hurumph, hurumph, hurumph. And yeah. How but the hell did he come through that school with the philosophy of life that he has? Also, he's a dead fucking poet society, dude. He was like down. Yeah, but who? He's who, all the way down. Who inspired him at that school? <laughs> Nobody. The, uh, the guy who was wielding the paddle? I don't think so. Hmm. Maybe he's just uh, one of it those. It makes more uh, sense if he was beat down. Starter. Uh, yeah, no, I, I'm saying there's a there's a lot of like the nuts and bolts and the underpinning of the script that seem to be still from the legacy yeah. cancer plot that don't make sense if Robin Williams is like a super fulfilled. He's like, God, I'm so fucking happy in London uh, teaching these dead English poets with my hot, uh, probably French ballerina girlfriend. I don't know. I just see this black and white picture of, of her on his desk. Uh, and I love teaching so much. I got to go to America and do it at the school that I, the high school that I graduated from. Yeah. Uh, I could see him maybe wanting to go back to, to his roots there and re-inspire a new generation. But yeah, he could have done that anywhere. He could have taught anywhere. Let's move over to Rob, better known as Robot K. Uh, I saw this movie when it came out. I just turned 14 years old and I soaked this movie up hard at a time in life where my thoughts were growing existential. I was raised Catholic, but it never took and never made sense to me. Free thought, love, passion. Yes, please. Aaron mentioned that he first saw this movie when he was still with the Jehovah's Witnesses. But I'm curious if you recall, if this was when you were in like capital in the Witnesses. Yes. As, as I've revealed, I was I was still in not not just like physically, but like I was I bought in. I was fully bought in. Uh, please elaborate on what you recall of the first impact of this movie, if any, and how you received it now as adults, um, as parents, uh, as ex-cult members. And same question to you, Jim. You know, I will say, because uh, I feel like I'm at a bit of a crossroads of my life where it's like I'm I'm almost, um, uh, you know, achieved the primary goal of parenthood, which is getting a, a child that you respect and love to adulthood. The hell out of your house. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that they're able to launch and successfully be an entity other than than something that's an append, you know an appendage to you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm like, you know, what do, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And I started thinking, like, you know, but I look back and I'm like, I feel pretty fulfilled, you know, like I feel like I've done a fair amount of carpeting things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to mm-hmm. list off all my accomplishments and all that stuff, but like I was like. Yeah, like I, I, I'm, I'm. It's one of the things where I'm, I'm satisfied with where I'm at, and I'm kind of like excited to see where things go from here. But like, I don't know. There's a lot that I'm like looking to seize right now. Yeah, that's the thing. I'm watching this movie, and I'm thinking, hmm, have I carpeted the diem? Because I mean, that's what that's what the movie wants you to do is question your own path. I feel like I have forged my own path from. You know, the day I was born, essentially, uh, I, I was born with some kind of spirit that said, you know what? People might have other definitions of what you should be or whatever. And I've kind of just eschewed those and been what I'm going to be. And that that doesn't mean that like every day I'm out there deciding, you know, putting my finger up in the wind and saying, which way should I go? Yeah, uh, right. it means that generally I have followed a path 
that has been charted by my own will, my my own whims, I guess, mm-hmm. and not by somebody else. And I think that's yeah. the best you could ask. Really, the best you could ask of a life is that you do that and it doesn't fall apart or blow up in your face. Yeah. And so far, so good. Who knows? This might be the well, podcast the that kills it all. But and we've had a we'll lot see. of, and I will say for myself, there's been a lot of luck. I look back at totally. the path I've led, and boy, there is some close call. Like again, I, I came from fucking Mooresville, Indiana, no college degree, mm-hmm. uh, and I yeah, I just like there's so much luck that went into where I'm at now. But I guess my measure, one measure of success would be if I went back at the instant in time that 17 year old me finished this movie. And I'd be like, hey, here is a brief outline of the last 20 years. How, how do you think we success? I think that my 17 year old me would be over the fucking moon. Mm-hmm. It would not believe the shit that we've gotten up to. Uh-huh. And I feel really good about that. Like, even if I, you know, God forbid, got a cancer diagnosis tomorrow. I was really thinking about that this morning I, when I was making my notes. It's like, God, what if I did, you know, God, it's like, I, I guess I wouldn't be too because I've I've done almost everything. Like 10 years ago when Jack was six, I would have been going to the grave with a lot of regrets and a lot of fears. But like, yeah, again, I don't want to die. <laughs> so I'm, not, I'm not kneeling here. I mean, I'm just saying to go like, back and teach a class at your high school first. Oh, fuck. Oh, gee. Yeah. Uh. What would you can, teach? I, can I be the administrator? Can I roll up my sleeves and fix the place? Or do I just mm-hmm. have to be a cog in that shitty, shitty engine? Well, you get fired if you try to fix it. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, of course, everybody has some regrets in their life. But I think on the whole, I've been fairly lucky. And a lot of it is due to just following my own passions, my own feelings. And I uh, had the benefit of like... uh well, and that's the other thing too. Like there, there's this thing about Neil in this movie where uh, Keating tells him, like, you have to just tell your parents how you feel. Tell your dad how you feel; they'll understand. Uh, th- there was no world in which Red Foreman would have understood, and that's that's another parallel. Of my own life, I did tell my parents how I felt about their crazy religious stuff uh, a- after it all blew up, but I eventually did tell them that there was like no point in trying to get me to come back because this is not my life. This is their life. And I feel so much better for having done that because at least they know, at least it's not like, I don't feel like I'm keeping them on some kind of string, right? Uh, Holding out hope. But that's the thing. Like I, I was able to do that and escape pretty much any consequence. It would have been impossible for Neil to do that. Yeah. Um, Rob continues, I was watching this movie with my 13-year-old daughter. Uh, she mentioned that she had heard of it and took that. I took that as an opportunity to share it with her. My wife, while we were watching the movie, commented that she finds the movie manipulative emotionally, and that's why she isn't a fan. We discussed it then, but I'm curious, what, in your opinion, hmm. uh, separates something from inspiring versus manipulative? Beyond entertainment, what's the point of art if not to inspire and evoke thought? Uh, thoughts? Maybe honesty. Maybe like... The I, look, I, I don't think this movie is perfect. Like I said, I, I'm sympathetic somewhat to the arguments of Roger Ebert that this is not actually a very good movie. I just found it much more inspirational, I think, than he did. Um, and I'm less close to the material. And one of his points is, yeah, they're, they're ignoring a lot of the consequences and the realities of car paying that diem. 
but I, I, I don't know. Cause I see severe consequences. I see a lot of trials that the kids have to go through in order to chart their own path. And I, I, I don't know. It's there. It's maybe not as front facing as Ebra wanted, but I think it's there. Yeah. I, I, I think that, you mentioned honesty and I think honesty also comes from a lot of your perspective. Like I think this movie is going to ring true to a certain type of person and Mm -hmm. there's going to be other types of people that just like, this is just such bullshit, you know? Um, Right. And I think from Ebert's point of view, from obviously your wife's point of view, because it is, it is, you know, like, and I, I, um, boy, I I do, I do. It's like one of those things. It's like, uh, you know, when you see it, like we've all seen something that is like really trying to jerk your tears. Like like the entire mm-hmm. third act of Titanic, the entire final act of Titanic <laughs> is actively trying to make you weep your fucking eyeballs out. Mm-hmm. Um, is that cheap and exploitative? And, or, or like, are you so bought in that you actually get into the tragedy? And if you can't identify with Jack and Rose, well, here's this elderly couple holding each other uh, as the water rushes into room. And here's these doomed uh, quartet that uh, decides to go down the ship and try to calm people down with their music rather than take one of the last lifeboats. And here's this selfish prick trying to get... It's, it's like, there's all different perspectives. If you can't relate to one... He, um, I think one of the problems here is like there is a very specific wavelength of people that you can relate to here. Yeah, yeah. And you have to like if you're outside of that, you know, um, segment, you have to probably try the fir- uh, hard and the further out you get from that uh, wavelength, you probably have to try harder and harder to like really relate to the the, 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 the problems of like mm-hmm. your parents having too much uh, hopes and ambitions and support for you, you know. Uh, yeah yeah I, I don't know i'm i'm trying to think of like oh boy what kind of what kind of people have can't put themselves in this the scenario here of these kids it's, it's maybe people who have been so beaten down by a life that is actually kind of similar that they're like this is too pollyanna about it or what like i don't know i I think if you had it really hard and you never were given opportunities or felt like you escaped the gravity of that situation then i i could see you almost resenting this movie because of how much hope it and inspiration it puts on the screen yeah it just yeah and it comes back to truth right you would just see it and yeah perspective you would see it as like this is fantasy none of this stuff is possible in the real world that I live in. Yeah. Yeah. And I can see a lot of kids. Maybe I, it'd be interesting to see how many kids were inspired watching this film. And then 20 years later, look back and think, ah, it's but a shit. You know? <laughs> right, nothing, I, I tried my hardest and it did just didn't work, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, he continues. I think the soundtrack and score fits. It hits the time and place really supports the tone. Some of the score evokes Simon and Garfunkel and the feel of folk music the popular form of poetry that would impact pop culture following this movie's time period of the late fifties and sixties before pop songs are as poetry. We all love poetry. We just accompany it with music. True. Fair. True. Yeah. Uh, Rob is the one that made the connection to that. This, you know, like this movie, like, you know, this is his parents era. This is the Madman era that I thought was mm-hmm. interesting. 
He also says on a cinematography, the scene with Todd, Ethan Hawke, riffing poetry and Walt Whitman's portrait. Uh, imagine the size of the camera while filming. This was done in the late 80s, shot on film. The scene, uh, he also mentions the scene of the, pape, the piper on the dock. Yeah, I didn't think about it. That one shot of like the camera just swirling around the classroom. I yeah, how the hell did they do that? It seems like the desks were all I, way too close. They I must have said some... did they have the desk on wheels or something? And as the camera came toward it, they pulled it out of the way. Pulled it away or or and the then put cam- it back. The, the desks were actually twenty feet away, but they were shooting with a weird uh telephoto Maybe. lens that made them look brought them closer, uh flattened out the yeah, I don't know. The, I, uh, I didn't think about it, but that's pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he concludes as I've been working a lot lately, trying to make something capital letters, making things is hard. You two have made something extraordinary, not just a podcast, but a warm, fun and caring community space. Thank you. Bald move. Do not forget your impact. Well, this is the part where I'm supposed to be like Robin Williams. I'm like, ah, oh, just go burn my yearbook because I'm a piece of shit. And my yearbook page is ugly and you shouldn't find me inspiration at all. Tee hee. Uh, <laughs> right. I'm going to, I'm going to slip in and, and leave a copy of Walt Whitman on your bedroom dresser tonight, Rob. Don't worry yeah. about it. Be all self deprecating. Uh, so people don't think you're full of yourself. <laughs> I'm Midwestern. It's like breathing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nina from DC says, I wasn't even in kindergarten yet when dead poet society was first released in 1989, but it followed me throughout my life as I grew older in the form of impactful, unforgettable teachers who had seen it and quoted it in English classes. Friends who in our nascent, nascent, nascent adolescence said that I should watch it because the boys in it were cute. And Robin Williams, America's uncle, who I knew as Genie from Aladdin, the child who grew up too quickly in Jack, the kid trapped in Jumanji, Peter Pan and Hook, and of course, Mrs. Doubtfire. Hello! Um, this is interesting because I also came across a cadre of really embittered teachers that hate this movie when I was trapped, when I was reading hmm. uh, people's uh, thoughts and reviews. Like there's like, what were I guess there's rationales for hating it. I, I, I don't know. I imagine being a public high school teacher or junior high school teacher and to uh, the idea of having like a classroom of kids that are all ultra committed and their parents are bought in and you have the ultimate resources uh-huh. and support like it must be very frustrating like oh it must be it must be wild to be a preparatory school teacher and you just you just take your kids out of class and have them kick a ball and recite keating and go you know yeah pat yourself on the back and go and, home and resources that he has as a teacher yeah. are wildly incongruous with what public yeah. teachers have there's there's um, no desk thrown in class you're no one got in a fight today you didn't get spit on no one called you a bitch uh this is what i'm talking yeah. about with the the truth the 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 truth and the perspective right like exactly those people yes very much will see this as a fall it will ring false to them that any teacher would have this kind of latitude but boy wouldn't it be nice yeah you know, what, if you could if actually every, teach kids instead of making them memorize a bunch of shit. Yeah. Yeah. Forcing them to. Yeah. I, I think that's like a, a fundamental th- shift that I've made in the like the last 10 years is like, I don't I guess I don't uh, hate people that have it better than me. I just wish everyone had the same opportunities, you know, sure. or the same basic shot. I, I wish there's a little bit more of a level playing field, you know. Here's the thing that I really like about that last scene. Um Aside from all the Robin Williams stuff or Keating stuff we talked about, 
the kids in that class don't all get up and stand on their desks and say, oh, captain, my captain. About half of them do. Just the ones huh. that he reached, just the ones that he inspired, right? Right. You, it's It says that, like, you're not going to reach everybody with this message, but the ones you do, it'll be super impactful with. And I and guess there's... that's... That's the thing, right? Like there's the the brutal ass paddling for everyone else. You can't reach <laughs> right with the military schools. Yeah. I mean, where are the military schools going to get their kids from if not right. the rest of this class? Right. The paddle flunkies uh go to the the military <laughs> academies. But you know what I mean? It's not like you're going to have a perfect 100% record with teaching kids no matter what teaching style you have. True. Because every kid is different. Every kid has different opportunities, different perspectives, different attitudes. Levels of parental parental engagement and home life. and Right. Know. But you do what you can and hopefully you reach some of them. And that's what I like about the end of this movie. Uh, Nina continues unbeknownst to me at the time I first watched it in late junior high or early high school. Dead poets would prepare me for my first significant life changing encounter with grief. My childhood friend took his own life before we even reached the cusp of 30 years old. We often turn to art when we're grieving or we shun it in fear of feeling too much. And I did the latter. But eventually one day when I was messing, missing my friend and something reminded me of him, I popped a Dead Poets DVD and let myself remember. Without going into too much here, I was also enduring something personally throughout childhood and my teenage years with an overbearing, terrifying family member who, if I didn't find a way to escape, would most likely push me to the edge of the same precipice in which Sean... Robert Sean Leonard's character, Neil Perry, found himself to say that the movie helped save me in a way wouldn't be completely accurate. But if it wouldn't be complete hyperbole either, it showed mm -hmm. me the consequences of Neil's choice could free me as it did him. But it would cage those I would leave behind. So I stayed and eventually escaped. The English teacher who first told me to seize the day in sixth grade gave me Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass and essentially kept my tumultuous childhood afloat with books was the subject of my college admissions essay. When I graduated from Brown with an English degree, I told her in typical 90s, 2000s, cloying schmaltz, oh, captain, my captain, I couldn't have done it without you. Corny, but also true. Yeah, <laughs> it is, yeah. It is fucking corny, Nina, but it's also heartfelt. <laughs> it's honest. Right? It's honest, right? That's the thing. You, uh, you might not attribute it directly to this movie, but it's stuff like this. Yeah. I feel like uh, the teacher probably just combusted into uh, <laughs> self-satisfied flames when you get something mm -hmm. like that from a kid, right? Yeah. Um, I guess I want to finish because that's the last piece of feedback. Um, uh, and if I, I think I heard back from everyone. There's also to um, you know Brooklyn MD and Josh H that said they were happy to to, to, to commission it. Um, if I did miss anybody, I really feel bad. I, I, I tried to make an earnest attempt to get everybody's feedback that wanted to submit it. Um, I know I've, I've said it sometimes it gets, um, you know, it can get bleak around these bald move parts when we talk about the state of the world. But there's one thing that really resonated when Robin Williams says that world, words and ideas change the world. And I think this is something that they that came up in the latest episode of Miss Davis, too. This might be super corn pone or still naivety that the world doesn't beat out with me. But I do believe that is just about the ultimate currency. Like mm -hmm. you can have your bullets and you can have your bucks and you can have your prestigious uh, boarding schools. But like it is the words and ideas that ultimately shape the world in the most impactful ways. Mm -hmm. And I uh, happen to believe because I'm right that the important ideas and words are broadly speaking on the right side of history uh, right now and will continue to be in the future. And uh, 
things might get bleak in the interim and the uh and, and the short term, but like long term, because of that fact, because we are thinking beings that can communicate ideas to each other, that's that's what matters. And that's the thing I'm gonna take out of this. Um the thing that I still find relatable. Uh and a reason I still like to talk in this here microphone. It's not just all about the the fun stuff, but I, I like talking about the the important and inspirational things too. Do you have any closing thoughts, my captain? No, I like it. I'll leave it there. Um, all right. Well, guys, thanks for coming together as a community commission. This you might ask, how does one community commission a podcast? And I'd say, don't fucking ask. Don't ask me. Uh, these people did this all. They all got the money in. Uh, but ultimately, if you want a self-commission or community commission, you're going to end up at one spot and one spot only support.baldmove.com. Click on a commission podcast, uh, lay out the cash, uh, throw in the movie or TV show or video game, or I don't know, comic book, graphic novel, uh, cave painting, Italian um, opera, Italian opera, poetry collection, that mm-hmm. takes us about two-ish hours to consume. And you, too, can be the proud owner of your own Bald Move podcast. It's called Commission Podcast. Check it out at support.baldmove.com if you're interested. Elsewise, again, one last thank you to Michelle Beach and Burnett, Nina from D.C., uh, which I think her screen name on the, the forums and the Discord is Nina Bambina, Rob, uh, Robot K 75 Stephen S., Brooklyn MD, and Joshua H., Thank you very much for commissioning this podcast. I did like revisiting it. And uh, we'll see you on another commission or prestige podcast real soon. Until then, I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya.